0: Hands down, my favorite CD of all time would have to be Live at the Village Vanguard by Bill Evans. Well, for sure, Giant
1: Steps by John Coleman. Joni Mitchell. One
0: would have to be
1: the essential Billy Holiday.
0: Duke Ellington. Kind of Blue. Sticky Fingers. Fingers Beatles. The Who. Todd Runyon. Keith Jarrett.
1: Oscar Peters. Dave Brubeck. Songs in the Key of Life. Toronto is one of the three most important theatrical centers in the world. Our prominence is due in large part to David Mervish and his company, Mervish Productions. David is an entrepreneur, and he comes by it naturally. He's the son of Ed Mervish, whose store, Honest Ed's, made him a retailing icon. And it was Ed who, 50 years ago in Toronto, presented the first Mervish production. Today, under the leadership of David Mervish, Mervish Productions have become a force on the worldwide theater scene. they presented hundreds of productions in Toronto, many of them musicals, including Mamma Mia, Les Mis, and Tommy. What music would a man who's had so much to do with shaping the cultural tastes of Canadians take to a desert island? David Mervish will be here in a few minutes to tell us. But first, here is one of his desert island picks from Les Mis. This is Bring Him Home. One of the defining versions of that song that was Bring Him Home from Les Mis, performed by Combe Wilkinson. And as promised, uh, it was one of the Desert Island picks of my guest today, uh, David Mervish, and he is here. What a great uh, version of that.
0: Thank you, Ross. It really was. uh,
1: And he kind of, Combe owned that, did he not? Really owned the role for a while?
0: He uh, established that role in uh, London. He was the first person to play that role. And um, for us it was a real turning point in the theatre because in 1986 I began to produce shows uh, for our subscription season and this was 1989 and we had passed on Cats because uh, we didn't want to disrupt the subscribers and we realized that they wanted to see the show that was really moving the most people and connecting with people and the the show to do that was Les Miserables. Over the uh, next hour, we're going to listen to some of your
1: Desert Island picks. But before we play the next piece, I really want to go back to the to the very start and, and talk to you about growing up in the in the Mervish household and what the exposure was to music growing
0: up. Well, I think the exposure really came from my mother, and uh, she loved to sing. She loved to sing as a a little girl. She her. Uncle Lolly had a a barber shop in Hamilton and she'd be three or four and they'd put her up on a box so that the customers could see her and she would sing. And uh, when she was 17, she won a singing contest and was able to sing with Percy Faith and his orchestra on the radio. And I think that was a, a big moment in her life. And I remember as a child, her uh, washing the dishes and singing Un Bel mori" from Madame Butterfly. So uh, uh, she would often, there was a song that she loved. She took uh, singing lessons all through her life. Before we, we listen to this next piece, just one question,
1: and, and that's about your dad, Ed, and, and his relationship with your, with your mom and his journey to do with musical theater. How much of that had to do with your mom?
0: I think a lot of it had to do with my mother. You know, my father had one goal in life, which was to not be a burden on anyone. And, you know, he had been uh, stranded by the Depression. And uh, in Canada, the the family had come from Washington, D.C., when he was nine, and uh, what was essentially a broken-down, bankrupt grocery store. But he moved uh, through his life from uh, Dundas Street to Bloor Street, and I think she opened the door to King Street for him. She was, uh, when they first got married, she wanted to hear uh, the 1812 Overture and uh, the Toronto Symphony playing, and they played in Varsity Stadium in those years, out in the outdoors in the middle of summer. My father got up at three in the morning to get by groceries for uh, the powered food chain, and uh, come back from the market. And at the end of the day, my mother had bought these two tickets, and they didn't have much money, so they they bought tickets behind the timpani. And uh, that was my my father's first experience of symphony, and he came back again in about 25 years for the next one.
1: Let's have a listen. This is uh, Herbert von Karajan, and uh, this is his take on uh, Puccini on Jazz FM 91. Madame Butterfly that was Herbert von Karajan with the Berlin Philharmonic and Mirella Freni and uh, man what a powerful piece of music I think could be one of the most powerful moments in opera
0: all that longing and waiting and anticipation of will he come back and where, when he comes back what will happen and I'm not going to run down to the shore I'm going to wait for him up here at the top of the hill and uh, my heart will burst if I uh, speak to him before I, I, I see him
1: I want to go back and just you know and, and pick up where we left off before the piece of music about growing up in the in the mervish household and uh, how much of a part of your life was the retail aspect of things in the and the restaurant
0: well my, my father always came home at six o'clock and my mother always had dinner on the table at six. And you could set your watch by my father at 10 o'clock, he'd go to bed, unless it was the opening of one of his shows, and then he'd go to the theater. But he really didn't like to go out otherwise, unless he he really had to. Um, There were some events that he did go to, but he wanted to be able to get up at 6.30 or 7 and go to work at Honest Ed's, and at noon he'd be in the restaurant. So... Did you work at Honest Ed's? I did. When I was a 10-year-old, I used to put uh, the goods into the bags at the cash desks. And as a 2-year-old or 3-year-old or 4-year-old, I made it difficult for my parents to find me by hiding underneath the merchandise and underneath the counters. So, uh, um, you know, it it was very much a part of my life. My grandmother, my father's mother, uh, worked in the dress department, but she didn't want anyone to know that she was Ed's mother. And on Saturdays when I was working there, we'd go to, we'd time our, our lunch breaks that we would go across to Kresge's together and sit at the soda counter. And, uh, they always did a wonderful chicken pot pie. So, uh, I, I always ordered the same thing, but, uh, on Saturday nights, I would sometimes be allowed as a special treat to go home with my grandmother and sleep over and watch Ed Sullivan. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I have fond memories of all of that, and she lived not that far from the store.
1: The Ed Sullivan Show. How much did that have to do with shaping your your musical taste and your taste for theater?
0: I I think that all of it uh, was unpremeditated in terms of, of music. I uh, I somehow was not uh, a prodigal in that area. What, what was interesting about it was, you know, I, I struggled with piano because for my mother, piano lessons were very important. And when she had 25 cents, they had an upright piano when she was a little girl, and that's what a lesson cost. And she couldn't get a lesson every week, but when they had the 25 cents, she got a lesson. And so uh, she made sure I had piano lessons, and I made sure I didn't practice but I probably got through grade four piano in 10 years. so uh, Congratulations. <laughs> yes, thank you. I, I wanted to play the bagpipes, and I went to pipe major Dewar at the 48th Highlanders, and he put me on the chanter, and no we got way. started. Oh, yes. But then they sent me to Interlaken, which was a music camp, and they said, what instrument do you play? And I, I said, well, I'm trying to learn the bagpipes. And They said, okay, we'll put you on an English oboe. English oboes are really tough to make a good sound out of. You have to wet those double reeds, and if your teeth bump into them, it's $10. So uh, I went through a few reeds, and they moved me on to clarinet. Um, I had some problems there, too, so eventually they got me on to saxophone, and then they got me back into piano lessons, and I became a pottery major and made little uh, ashtrays out of clay. You still have them? I still have one or two of them, but I did l- I love the experience of having a choice of three different orchestras every evening with different programs that you could go to at that camp, and that was pretty m- miraculous, and they had some great uh, musicians that came, and uh, they had great teachers, and I have to say, I made most of my piano lesson advance- advancement at that summer camp. What's your uh, your next Desert Island pick? What would you like to listen to? Um I have fond, fond memories of The Winner Takes It All from Mamma Mia. I think that the in the context of the show, uh, it's, it's a mother's story. She's left abandoned without a husband. One of three men may be the, her daughter's husband, but they've come to claim their child. Uh, she's not yours, she's mine. And she sings this song by Abba, which uh, I think is a lot of fun and stopped the show every night. So the version that we have here is is by
1: Siobhan McCarthy from the, the London cast recording. But before we go into this, just and, and this might be a good point to talk about it, is for a man that has presented so many musicals, why is it that you have never recorded any of them in terms of having cast recordings?
0: It, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, many of the musicals we've done have been successful somewhere else and started their career either in London or New York. And they make the investment there of making the recording, and I don't know what it would cost today, but people were very particular and made the best recordings they could, and they'd spend a half million dollars to make that recording. And once they had done that, they really didn't want to record another cast because they felt they'd already made the investment. They wanted to sell as many as they could of what they had already done. So it was very difficult to get the rights, and even if you did, it wasn't economically uh, a wise move to do your own recording. Let's listen to the uh, original uh, London cast recording of Mamma Mia, and
1: this is Winner Takes It All, one of the Desert Island picks of my guest, David murvish
0: I don't want to talk About things we've gone through Though it's hurting me
1: Now it's history The winner takes it all Welcome back. You're listening to Stranded, music for a desert island on Jazz FM 91. I'm Ross Porter, and my guest is David Mervish. A name that is synonymous with uh, with theater in this uh, in this city. Fiftieth anniversary.
0: Fiftieth anniversary.
1: Yes. Since you and your dad presented the first uh, show.
0: Uh, September of nineteen sixty three. And what was that first show? Uh, Never too late with William Bendix, and all the New Yorkers came up and. It was a great opening, and years later, the people from the Schubert Theatre said to me, you know, David, we came, we saw the theatre, you would fixed it up beautifully, but we knew how difficult it was to find shows to put into that theatre because the O'Keeffe Centre, which is now the Sony, had been built, and all the big shows were to go there, and this theatre was to be torn down and made into a parking lot, and we thought that your father would last about six months. So sometimes you get it wrong. Were you able to tell your dad that? I did. I was able to tell him that I had this uh, discussion with uh, Jerry Schoenfeld, and uh, uh, he laughed and uh, said, well, I can understand him thinking that. You know, in those days, if you were closed, you knew what you lost in a week. But when you were open, there was no limit to what you could lose.
1: <laughs> so 50 years of, of doing a theater here. If you were going to describe the uh, the, the, the taste of, of Torontonians, is there, is there something that you've learned
0: that what works and what doesn't? You know, there's no formula to it. Uh, I think that Toronto wants to see the very best that's available in the whole world. They want to know what's going on outside. And at the same time, they want to tell their own tale. So something like Dry Lips ought to move to Capus Casing which came out of our community or Two Pianos, Four Hands found great audiences or The Drawer Boy but at the same time they were you know, well engaged with Les Miserables they were uh, very supportive and anxious to see uh, the, the show that we opened The Princess of Wales with Miss Saigon to great success and uh, we've had uh, a whole string of shows over the years that uh, um, have but but there's not a pattern I I think that sometimes the moment is the right moment for that particular story and the audience responds uh, in because there's something in the air in that moment and it uh, it's often 12 to 18 months after you've decided to do the show. So you don't know what's going to be going on when you actually put the show on stage. You know, you, you go and you look at it and you become excited about it. And I know I'm working on shows that won't reach the stage for another two years. And I'm hoping that their moment won't have passed or their moment will be just arriving by the time we get it out there. So so when you say working on, what do you mean? Well, we were in uh, England and we went to Stratford-on-Avon and we saw a show called The Heart of Robin Hood. And I found it uh, absolutely charming and extraordinary in, its, in the way that it was uh, staged. And so we asked, you know, if it was possible to do something with it and we met the director who came from iceland gisli and the only place we could meet was in oslo and at that moment he was performing in and part of a show called metamorphosis and we sat there in the audience and watched metamorphosis in norwegian and we were absolutely enchanted by that and at the end of the evening Uh, That show became a part of our subscription season for the next year. So you're thinking two years down the road. So we're always thinking down the road about what we're doing and, and looking at shows. By the end of this or middle of this November, we have to know what we'll be announcing in February for the following September. So at the moment, we've announced 18 shows for the next 12 months. But in fact, we're looking at another seven or eight shows to announce coming in February just you doing this? No, everyone in the office is interested in theater. And we all have friends who go to the theater, and they all keep us informed about what they've seen. And then I come here into this office, and you inform me about something <laughs> I didn't know about. So, you know, we, we keep our antenna uh, up there and, and listening, but in the end, we want to see it. I, I saw something rather wonderful uh, about an hour out of Amsterdam recently called Soldier of Orange. Uh, won't be easy to do here and I don't know that I would want to do it here because it's a story particular to Amsterdam um, and it's done in an abandoned army airport hangar my guest is David Mervish, and uh, we're listening to his Desert Island picks
1: and also celebrating the 50th anniversary if you will of the of Mervish productions
0: what's the next piece we're going to listen to I, I thought perhaps we'd listen to Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan um uh, it's 1963 and I've just uh, decided to open an art gallery. Uh, the world is changing and Dylan is part of that changing world. And uh, in its day, I guess this might have been seen as something of a protest song against uh, the Vietnamese War. I think today we see it in a more general light. But uh, we had friends who uh, came to Toronto, became painters and We're here because of that war. Uh, Canada, in a way, has been an opportunistic country. It's been a refuge for people who uh, have been part of dissent. And uh, I think also, uh, you know, you think of Idi Amin and Uganda and all the wonderful people who came to this country because somebody else was driving them out and what great contributions have been made. So I thought this might be an appropriate song. Here's Bob Dylan on Jazz FM 91.
1: How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man Bob Dylan and "Blown in the Wind" and it's one of the desert island picks of my guest today, uh, David Mervish. 50th anniversary of Mervish Productions. How many shows have you done in the 50 years?
0: In the 50 years, um, boy, I've, I've not I've not done the full count, but they're over 500. Why has it
1: worked for you and not worked for others? And I'm thinking, you know, primarily of Dan Cap here and, and there. You know, foray into this.
0: you have to be willing to lose money constantly and eventually you know if you can just tread water and uh, keep going you'll eventually maybe hit something that'll be a little more rewarding but it's not a business it's a disease and uh, therefore you know any sensible person would recognize that and Aubrey is smart. And he decided that, you know, he wasn't going to work for nothing. It's a nice hobby. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a good way to characterize theater. I don't go to Vegas. I don't have to.
1: <laughs> okay, but let me, let me play the, the devil's advocate for a, for a moment.
0: You, you have d- to win enough that you can stay in the game. Okay. Otherwise, Ooh. you won't be open. If you, aren't, if you don't make a profit then you can't keep doing anything. So my father always thought if if he could make a profit in the theater, it would be safe, and the building would be safe, and it would go on. And uh, he, for about 90% of his effort, he made 5% of his profit. The irony is that all businesses are tough. It doesn't matter what business you're in. The retail business has shifted it. Once one thought all you had to do was buy t-shirts, and sell them for more than you paid for them. But today, people buy t-shirts on the internet, they buy them in stores, they buy them near where they live because people don't maintain price anymore. The world around us has changed radically. The services that my father brought uh, to his consumers uh, were unique in 1954. And even in 1963, and I would say even up to 1990. Has any of that impacted on you? Not in the theatre. The interesting thing about theatre is that the theatre is about people telling their feelings, their stories, their and storytelling is at the core of theatre and will never change, never be taken away and can't be replaced.
1: So 50 years of doing this, and how many generations would that be
0: too? It's two. I, I have uh, some children who are interested, and uh, one of them is working in London at the moment in the theater, and uh, they, uh, one of them has worked in the theater with us for four years or so. So hopefully there'll be a, a continuation of this disease. And, and we do do it for profit. We don't do it not for, We're not a not-for-profit, but our challenges are similar to the not-for-profits it's picking the appropriate show for the appropriate building so that you fill all the seats because the only time people want to go to the theater is when it's so popular that you can't get a seat a show that you can buy a ticket to is no fun at all so how do you develop the
1: audience of the of the future because you're working with what's currently out in the marketplace in terms of audience base but As a businessman, you've got to be thinking about the next. Well,
0: that's very important, really, to us, Ross. And what we do is we make sure that there are some seats that are reasonable, although the theatre is all handmade, and there are many constraints on price and reasons why the prices have to be what they are. Uh, When we built the Princess of Wales, for example, all the experts said build one balcony because if you want to shift the lines of your prices it's more seam- seamless and you ca- can have more high price seats but we purposely built two balconies because we wanted to keep the audience as close to the stage as possible but we also wanted to know that there would be some seats in that theater that were as good as the best seats downstairs and that at the same time were not as costly and so uh, When we do subscription, we always have a price range where it actually is cheaper to go to the live theater than it is to go to a movie. I want to play, my
1: guest, by the way, is David Mervish, and uh, we're listening to some of his Desert Island picks. I want to play one of your picks in in a moment, and this is a piece by Stephen Sondheim, but I wanted to tell you that one of the most memorable nights that I've had with one of your productions really wasn't a production. It was the night that you brought Stephen Sondheim up for his to celebrate his 80th birthday. I think it was, and it was just basically him being interviewed on uh, on stage. Talk to me about Sondheim, and I mean that was a f- pretty significant gesture on
0: on your part. Well, so, it, it was an important moment because we wanted to celebrate. Uh, this man who has extraordinary achievement and who really has changed our taste in theater and musical theater. And he starts out with uh, shows like uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and uh, he ends up with Into the Woods and uh, Assassins and many other more challenging, I wouldn't say more challenging, but different moments in the, the history of the times that we live in. And he's extraordinarily clever There's someone who wrote the crossword puzzles for the New York Times at one time. So, uh, the complexity of, of his songs make him a very popular choice when people are doing auditions. You'll often hear a Sondheim song, uh, as something that an actor will choose to prove how versatile and how capable they are. And, uh, I I produced Into the Woods in London, so I had the privilege of actually working a little bit with him. And uh, uh, also, um, uh, just uh, it was a delight to be able to celebrate that moment. Unfortunately, I wasn't actually in town at the time. I had to be in Europe, and uh, my office did it. And uh, uh, we were just, I had nothing but good reports from it. Sometimes, The theater is just a one-night event that never is repeated. Tell me about this next piece, the one from Into the Woods. Well, I I think this song is uh, No One is Alone, um, is a good reminder that we don't always uh, have all the views that are, you know, we may think we're right, but someone else thinks they're right too. And... Maybe we should give a little tolerance and rem- remember that because they too have friends just as you might have friends. And, uh, uh, and at the same, so on one level, there's a level of humility. On another level, there's the fact that you're not alone either. And so there's a level of confidence. So there's an ambiguity to this song that I always had liked and uh, yet a-, a soothing aspect to it. And uh, and yet a, dis- a, a, a an unsettling a- aspect to it. And they seem to
1: be common elements in many of Sondheim's compositions, don't they?
0: Yes, he poises. Uh, he he makes us ask questions and think. And no stranger to loneliness. No, no loneliness a big element. This is from
1: the original Broadway cast recording of Into the Woods. Here is "No One Is Alone," one of the desert island picks of my guest today, David Mervish, on Jazz FM ninety one.
0: Mother cannot guide you, no one is alone.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to a, a special edition of Stranded Music for a Desert Island. I'm Ross Porter, and my guest is David Mervish from Mervish Productions, one of the, uh, the most important, I would say, in this country uh, presenters of, uh, of live theater. Fifty years, David, of, uh, of doing this, and uh, I'm just wondering, you know, the, the fact that this was happening, and if you went back and looked at, at theater in terms of how it's being taught in, uh, in universities and, and what have you, Have you the fact that there was a a a permanent place for theater here, have you seen growing numbers of
0: people willing to get in the field? Absolutely. And and we have a very high level of training in our schools. This is a you know, and I—if I'll begin to mention some, and I know I'll leave some out. But you know, the Randall School takes people who have graduated and turns them into triple threats. Uh, Sheridan, we hire a lot of people from there, from Ryerson, from U of T, from York. Uh, who am I leaving out? Because uh, I know I'm leaving someone out, and they all do good work, and they all. Uh, do you have developmental programs in, what, for we, these people? We, we don't, but we have people who have floated from commercial theater into teaching and back out. Uh, we have teachers with real e- experience in, in this world. What, what has happened is the steadiness of knowing that there are jobs, uh, you know, and, and even uh, the high schools for the performing arts, uh, have, has lured people, very good people, into wanting to perform, and uh, we also find that certain shows which are very young casts, uh, when we do a show like uh, A Rock of Ages, we will find talent that hasn't gone through the school system. You know, 3,000 people will apply to be and we will rock you, and we'll do an open call and we'll, we're looking for people who are 18 years old or so. And, and we find them they're out there what about developing
1: the the playwrights of the, of
0: the future well that's what's so wonderful about toronto we do have theaters that concentrate on the writing and uh you know we now have off Mervish, so we look to work you know with smaller theater companies to do slightly edgier pieces that we wouldn't want to put into the subscription regular subscription season but that that are more challenging in other ways um Although all theatre is challenging, to get a big musical right is a great challenge, and sometimes a little bit of luck is needed no matter what size or scale you're working at. Uh, Your next Desert Island pick? Ah, this is a little tough, but I think I'd like to go to uh, uh, Bird on a Wire uh, by Leonard Cohn just because I think there has to be room for poets. Well, you picked one of the best.
1: Here's Leonard Cohen and Bird on the Wire on Jazz FM 91. Like a
0: bird on the wire, like a drunken midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free.
1: Leonard Cohen on Jazz FM ninety one and Bird on the Wire. And that's one of the uh, Desert Island Picks of uh, my guest David Mervish. There's a great deal that's known about uh, about uh, David Mervish, the entrepreneur and, and uh, theater producer, but uh, there's not known not a lot known about you just as a, uh, as, a
0: as a guy. Uh, married, married, uh, three children, couple of grandchildren. Uh, it's a good experience. I get to go to Riverdale park and see the animals. Hey, you're in my neighborhood. Uh, so, the hold uh, of the children? Uh, my children are all grown up, and 24 to 35. And, and working in the field? Uh, certainly uh, interested in it, and, and, and have worked in it, and will work in it, I think. But uh, you never know what people want to do with their lives exactly, so I don't like to predict. Favorite TV show? Oh, I'm 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 bad on on the TV shows. Uh, you know, I I am I, I'm a sentimentalist. Uh, I'll watch the Big Bang Theory. I like goofy people and goofy situations. It's good to laugh. It does help. It's, it's a good thing. We have time for uh, for one final
1: piece of music. What would you like it to be?
0: Oh, this is tough because uh, uh, I think. Maybe I should come back to the song that, that my mother used to sing to my father because uh, by Perry Como, it's more of a love song. Thank you, David. I appreciate you oh, uh, pleasure.
1: spending the uh, the time. No, it was fun, and thank you. My guest has been theater producer David Mervish. I'm Ross Porter, and you've been listening to a special edition of Stranded, music for a desert island.